Hello and welcome to a very okay podcast. My name is Trey Thompson. I'm the executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. And here with me, as always, is Dr. Bob Blackburn, the former executive director of the Oklahoma Historical Society. And Bob, it's been a minute since we were together. It's great to see you again. It's good to see you after the holidays and, and especially this time of year when I know you're going over the legislature and I'm not. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was uh, on the way over yesterday for our budget hearing over at the legislature, and I happened to catch you coming inside the Oklahoma History Center building, and uh, I tried to get you to go over and do it instead of me, but you took a hard pass on that. (laughs) I I had a smile on my face knowing that you were headed over there and taking care of us. You looked very relaxed, and I was very (laughs) jealous about that. Well, how were your holidays? Uh, Did you get a chance to spend some time with family? We did. The grand boys uh, got a five-year-old and a one-year-old in Denver, so Debbie and I went there. Got caught in the canceled flights coming back, but did get back at 2.30 at night. Which, yeah, that's a kind of a miracle. We're glad you're back. Which is about six hours after I normally go to bed, so uh, I was up late that night. But we had a great time in Denver, and well, of course the family, every moment is golden, and I'm just enjoying being a grandpa or papa is my new real occupation. Man. Well, I can't think of a better occupation. I have to tell you a little bit about our holidays. We went up to Chicago and uh, just barely beat that big winter storm that moved in over the holidays. And of course, I don't think the temperature got out of the teens while we were there. My brother and his family lived there. Now, my son, who just turned 15 right after Christmas, he's become a big fan of the NFL. And so uh, earlier, back in September of last year, we took him to his first NFL game at the Dallas Cowboys with the Cincinnati Bengals. He had a great time. So as we're driving into Chicago, he says, Dad, can we go to the Bears game that's uh, in town? So let me tell you this. The Bears are playing Christmas Eve in Soldier Field. And I, I say, okay, we'll look and see what tickets are. Well, tickets were only 23 bucks a piece. So there went my argument to say, well, it's too expensive. And uh, my brother was like, yeah, we should go do that. And so uh, there we are, Soldier Field, Christmas Eve. The temperature at kickoff is 9 degrees, Bob. And um, by the third quarter, I couldn't feel my toes. And so, uh, it, of course, the, the Bears are terrible. They were playing the Bills. The Bills won and all of that kind of thing. It was a fun atmosphere to be in. You can stand at the top of Soldier Field, and you can see the Shedd Aquarium. You can see out into the Great Lakes. Uh, but it was, I don't know that I've ever been colder in my entire life. So. Well, I'll tell you the payoff there, and I can talk about this with my uncles and my dad, is that when you're in a wheelchair and your son is taking care of you in your old age, he's going to remember that day. That I will be so. one of those memories that will stay with him and you. And it's something you two share, and no one can ever take that away from you. Well, we did have a good time, and my brother was with us as well, and uh, we made it. I have to say, we did make it through the whole game. I will say I spent about 25 minutes of the third quarter in the men's restroom because that was the only place there was heat in the entire stadium trying to get my toes to thaw out. And once I did, I made it to the rest of the game. And uh, uh, we are glad we did it, but uh, I'm also glad that it's, uh, as we record this, about 70 degrees outside today. So... It's good to be back in Oklahoma again. It's good to be back with you on the podcast and talking about history. And we've got a great topic today. We want to talk about, you wrote a book called The Crossroads of Commerce, and we want to talk about the history of retail establishments in Oklahoma. And Oklahoma's had some iconic ones over the years, but 
I thought we could start out. You know, you grew up here in Oklahoma. Do you have any good memories of of going shopping, maybe with your parents or with friends, at some of these uh, iconic Oklahoma establishments? Oh, great! You know, once you start thinking memories like that and the people in our lives, it's it's very nostalgic. Uh, I grew up uh, very early in Edmond, where my dad was a highway patrolman. My mom was teaching school before she taught her started her television career. But I remember uh, buying my first bicycle there uh, at Otasco and uh, going into Otasco and looking at all the toys and the smell of the tires, very much a part of who I am. And then later in life, living on the south side of Oklahoma City, probably the greatest memories of, of shopping, because I never was much of a shopper, but going to see our Anthony's every August before school started. And I got two new pair of jeans to start the school year. That was back when we kids, you know, we had patches on our jeans because we were so rough on them. But they were $5 a piece. I don't know why I remember that. And uh, I remember the Anthony's where we would get get those jeans and get a new pair of sneakers. And, uh, of course, I grew up in the, in the golden age of television when it was all local. So we didn't have the advertisements for a lot of the big national brands like you have now. And so almost all of the local retailers at a certain size advertised on television. So ads for B.C. Clark's, the iconic, yeah. you know, Christmas sales song. You can't have Christmas Clark's. in Oklahoma City without the B.C. Clark jingle, right? It's part of who we are since the community. But the same with uh, TGNY, which was a big regional retailer here. And that was, that was taking a five-and-dime Franklin store and then putting it on steroids. That was really what Ray Young and his partners did. And uh, going into a TGNY to buy records, I do remember that because they had a record place where you could go in and get, you know, a Beatles or Mamas and the Papas or some of those early bands. So retail uh, in Oklahoma City uh, was largely downtown Oklahoma City until 1964. Penn Square opened in 60, but it was still an outdoor plaza, open Mm. plaza. Uh, Shepherd Mall opened in 64. Then retail fled out of downtown Oklahoma City. So at that point, shopping becomes part of the mall experience. But before that, going downtown and seeing the Christmas decorations and going to the Midwest Theater or the center or the state, some of those, and then going shopping with your mom and eating at the cafeterias downtown, uh, retail was a part of our lives in, in Oklahoma. And when it was still downtown, it was still very much a part of who we were with our families. Well, I grew up in Texas, and so I didn't have some of these iconic uh, stores or shops that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but we did have Anthony's, and so I remember going to Anthony's in San Angelo, Texas, which was about you know, 60, 70 miles from where I grew up. And I have distinct memories of hiding in the clothes racks of Anthony's and getting in trouble when my mom couldn't find me. Uh, we were playing, uh, me and my brother were playing games in the middle of the clothes racks. I'm sure that uh, that enhanced the shopping experience of everyone around us. But uh, I, I do have distinct memories of Anthony's as well. It's funny, my wife, who grew up in Woodward, has memories. She had a younger sister and brother. And she always talks about going into the shops downtown because Saturday, even though they lived in town, you'd still shop on Saturdays. That's when Gene or her dad would get his hair cut and uh, they'd go shopping. And you got dressed up to go downtown in the 1950s. And Debbie has a story about she was so embarrassed because Cheryl and Norman were hiding under all the clothes in the, <laughs> in the stores downtown. But all of her shoes, Uncle Oliver, um, uh, 
Uncle Charlie, I should say, Charlie Oliver, owned Oliver's shoe stores. And he had stores over in the Texas Panhandle, the Oklahoma Panhandle, western Oklahoma, as far south as Ardmore. So he had his own little chain of shoe stores that he opened after World War II. And uh, Debbie's mom worked in the Oliver store selling dress clothes. So one of my fond memories, and I love Debbie's mom dearly, and I always would enjoy going into that store and seeing her and watching her help these customers and that sense of family with Uncle Charlie coming in and out and uh, Aunt Lou. And it was just a, it was a family retail experience. Yeah, we've got a little town I grew up in called Brady, Texas. We've got a, uh, a store that's on the town square and it's been there forever. It's called Everages. And they sell everything from furniture to, you know, knickknacks and all all kinds of things that you could ever want. In fact, their slogan is, if we don't have it, you don't need it. And uh, that is one of the iconic shopping experiences in the hometown that I grew up in. In fact, even today when I go back to, back home, it doesn't feel like a trip unless I've stopped through Everages, at least for a little bit, to see some of the things that they have on sale yeah, there. That sense of place, that sense of community that you have. Exactly. Well, you know, when we're talking about retail in Oklahoma, you really don't get to the modern shopping experience without going all the way back into the early history and even into prehistoric history and talking about trade and the trade that that the uh, Native American tribes uh, would do with each other. We know for a fact, and, and for those of you who might need a refresher, you might go listen to our, our episode on Spiral Mounds with uh, Dennis Peterson when we had him on. But when they excavated those mounds, they found items from all over the United States, and those items get there because of trade. And uh, that's how kind of retail starts out. Can you can you talk a little bit about how we get to the point uh, in Oklahoma of uh, of getting into retail? Yeah, well, it all goes back to the basics of free enterprise. When we worked on the exhibit here, com- tri- uh, Crossroads of, of Commerce, and part of that was my my own personal career as a historian because I wrote histories of all these these businesses in Oklahoma. Out of the twenty six books, I would guess. 15 of them are on businesses because I wanted to understand free enterprise, what drives the wheels of the economy, uh, what supports paying taxes, getting jobs, people's quality of life. It all comes back to free enterprise. And we have to be champions of free enterprise. Uh, and I, I really broke it down into three themes. In an exhibit, as in a book, you've got to make it fairly simple, but really I use the themes of supply and demand. Uh, the basic law is is that uh, there has to be a demand and a supply. And you connect supply and demand, you make the whole thing work. And then people are trading back and forth. Second is that you have to add value to something. So whether it is adding value to the soil and growing your cotton and having your cotton to trade for a sack of sugar, that's free enterprise. Uh, and then third is taking a risk. People have to be willing to take a risk to invest in that cotton crop, invest in a building where you can sell things, investing in a shop that creates something out of wood or metal or clay. And then that's that's really at the heart of free enterprise. And if you go back to Spiro Mount, uh, the people from the Great Lakes area had uh, pipestone that you could quarry there in Minnesota that they would carry with them to the south to trade with the southern Mississippians who had trade goods that they got from the Gulf of Mexico, shells and beads that the people in the north wanted. And once you says, yes, this is how much value I have assigned to this pipe, this is how much I assigned to these beads, let's make a trade. 
that's free enterprise. Right. And then ultimately you add uh, the monetary part of it is that we have a currency that somehow we assign values to certain products, which again is based on supply and demand. If there's a lot of something, price will go down. It's a scarce supply, price will go up. So the price between gold and sand, both have value, but we assign prices. And so the Spiroans and then the merchants of the Southern Plains would have been the descendants of the people who lived at Spiro. Those would have been the Caddoan speakers, the Wichita and the Caddo, Natchez. And these people kind of had that, that commerce as part of their culture of trade. And they knew that their quality of life could be improved if they could encourage trade. So they became the middlemen between the Chickasaws and the Choctaws farther to the east and the Comanche and the Kiowa and the Plains Apache to the west. So you might get the Kiowa who have horses and, and uh, beaver pelts or deer skins that the Choctaws and the Chickasaws wanted, and they had trade goods from trading with the Spanish or uh, those colonists over in Savannah. And they would bring it and they would meet, and the Wichita would be those middlemen. And we know by the 1720s, the Wichita built a fortified palace up on Pond Creek in northern Oklahoma where the French could come up from New Orleans, the tribes from the east, the Sac and Fox, the, the Osage and others could come, the Comanche, the Kiowa, the Plains Apache, from the other direction, they could all meet and trade. And that was going on in Oklahoma from the earliest days. It seems like the French are the first to really kind of come from the outside and to start opening up trade. Uh, you'll have to excuse my, <laughs> you'll have to pardon my French here, but uh, <laughs> in 1719, Jean-Baptiste Bernard de la Harpe comes to Oklahoma, and he opens French trade to the Wichitas and to the Comanches. And the Wichitas would trade things like beans, corn, squash, horses. Bison were very valuable because we know how great the native tribes were about really taking every part of the bison and making it a useful tool of some, uh, of some form. And then in 1764, Auguste and Pierre Choteau established the village of St. Louis, and they start trading with the Osage there. And they learn the Osage language, they establish trust, and then uh, Pierre comes to Oklahoma and establishes a trading post on the Grand River near present-day Salina. And then with two years, the Chotos are controlling more than half of all the trade goods that are moving through St. Louis. Yeah, and of course in that story, you have to admire the Chotos for willing to take a risk because they were they had debts back in France where they were buying goods, had come across the Atlantic, come up river, and then sell, and then hopefully survive long enough. So that was taking a risk. But those Osages were taking a risk. So to have the trade goods to trade with the French, they had to go out onto the plains, hunt the buffalo, uh, defend their territory against the other tribes, you know, their ancient enemies, the Pawnees. They might meet and they'd have warfare, so you might lose your life, but you're adding value to that buffalo herd by getting the buffalo, tanning the hide, taking it to the trade post, and, and trading your added value to the Chotos who had added value. And of course, the Osages were the dominant force in Oklahoma from about the 1720s oh, to the early 1800s. So for 100 years, the Osages were dominant because they were getting guns from the French whereas the English never liked to trade, and the Spanish certainly refused right. to trade the guns. Right, the Spanish didn't want to give anything to, <laughs> to the, the natives. tribes. 
But the French didn't care. They didn't have settlers in the next valley who were moving out and with these farms. Well, for over 100 years, the Osages were militarily dominant in Oklahoma. They had pushed the Wichita south of the Red River. Uh, the Comanches uh, were fairly content to go farther south into the west. But the Osages were so dominant because of trade. They had trade goods that the French wanted. Uh, the French needed slaves to work in the Caribbean and the sugar plantations. Osages knew how to capture slaves. Uh, they knew how to get the hides that were needed and the other goods. Well, the French would trade them guns, whereas the Spanish and the English did not like to trade guns to the tribes because it just inflamed border conflicts, but the French would. And uh, with those guns, the Osages, who were big people anyway, dominant physically, just controlled this area for 100 years. And it gets back to free enterprise. You know, one of the uh, most important early settlements in Indian Territory was Dokesville. And that was established by Josiah Doak and his brother sometime around 1824. We're not exactly sure. And I should also mention that's an OHS site that you can still go visit today. Now, there's not a whole lot there. You can see some of the foundations of some of the original uh, settlement buildings there. But Dokesville becomes a place that is, for a while, it's going to be the capital of the Choctaw Nation. It is Sam Houston ends up coming through there. They have some industry there. And then a man named Robert M. Jones comes from Mississippi to Indian Territory. Uh, he settles around Dokesville. And then once the Red River gets cleared for riverboat traffic in eight, around 1838, then he's able to export crops and raw materials to New Orleans, and he imports the first cotton gin to Indian Territory and then expands. He's got 28 stores, two riverboats, but Dokesville is kind of the Oklahoma City, if you will, of its time down in southeastern Oklahoma. It's a thriving settlement. Yeah, and Robert M. Jones, and we call him the richest Choctaw. He, uh, by the standards of the day, he would have been considered a millionaire. He had Rose Hill Cottage. He had, you know, his plantation, several different kinds of, of exotic woods. He had portraits of American presidents. Here was a Choctaw who had been forced out of his homeland, got a job driving out a herd of horses and mules that people would need, but he was serving his people. At the same time, he was making a buck because he was opening general stores. I think he eventually had over 20 stores throughout the Choctaw Nation, had his own plantations. He did own African-American slaves. That was part of the economic system of the Old South, and Robert M. Jones was from that bolt of cloth. And I think a lot of people may not know, but a lot of the, the five tribes, when they came here, they, they had enslaved populations, and they brought them with them. Yes, Will Rogers' dad, Clem Rogers. Uh, owned slaves before the Civil War. So it was fairly common among the five tribes, especially uh, those of mixed heritage. Uh, in most of the, the centers of commerce, like Dokesville, uh, would have been on the borders with Texas to the south, Arkansas to the east, uh, Missouri to the northwest. And the, the old Texas road that started in Missouri went down to Texas. Uh, there's no, it's no accident that it became the crossroads of commerce, north and south, because with trade from Missouri to Texas, then people would stop in towns like Durant, Eufaula, uh, Muskogee, Wagner. Uh, and so the Texas Trail became a very important part that intersected with the Arkansas River, which was navigable as far north as what we have now present-day Muskogee. 
So with the ability to bring trade goods very cheaply up the river, either the, the Arkansas or the Red, and then from there, the goods would be transported by wagon to these other communities. And then in 1871, with the first railroad in Oklahoma, it connects those towns. Yeah. Suddenly, you can ship goods much more cheaply than ever before, even than water, much more safely. And then these towns grow. Well, these are centers of free enterprise, where the people in the surrounding communities were, were creating wealth and adding value to the soil, the sun, the grass, the crops, the seeds, the, the chicks, the, the calves, you know, all this, raising their cattle, and then they would exchange it in town. And once you have this exchange, it's creating specialists who need attorneys, who need newspapers, who need teachers, who need attorneys. And you get then retail establishments that you, the community is big enough with enough fluid wealth to support a general goods store, to support uh, a grocery store. And then these towns grow, Muskogee being the largest, all of them, in the territorial days. You know, one thing that was a little surprising to me is that Oklahoma was actually a pretty prosperous place for those who were engaged in salt production. And the Cherokees were uh, really involved in salt production. In fact, uh, Sequoia had a salt works. And um, uh, salt became, it was so important for curing meats. And, and if you were going to ship meats on long distances, then you had to pack it all in salt. And Oklahoma actually had a, a, very, um, a very robust salt trading enterprise, which uh, who would have thought? You know, that gets back to uh, some of the other elements of free enterprise. I've talked about the basics, but you get off into technology and how technology allows retail to change for you know, for, for your generation trade and my son, uh, internet has changed retail. It's technology. Well, in the day of Sequoia, before refrigeration, before railroads, you had to have that salt to preserve the meats that people needed. They needed the protein. That was a way to cure your meats with salt. So it was high value. Well, you advance all the way to railroads and refrigerated railroad cars. Suddenly you didn't need that salt. You needed ice. Well, that was the beginning of the free enterprise of opening an ice plant that also became the power plant for the community. And then you'd get your ice and you'd put it on the refrigerated cars and you wouldn't need the, well, so the value of salt had been high. Well, then it goes down and no one's in the salt business. Eventually, you get to big utilities with natural gas and coal generating power. Suddenly, those municipal power plants where you could get ice go out of business. My granddad in Claremore worked for an ice plant as and I look in the uh, census record, it says engineer. He was running an ice plant that would make the ice at night and then provide electricity for the town during the day. And it was a way of adding value to the fuel that fired the engines that created the steam that, that ran the engines that created all of this. And so technology was a, important to Sequoia just as he's important to us today. Well, fast forwarding a little bit, you get into the, the land run in 1889, and Oklahoma City is essentially created overnight, and this city springs up. What were some of the retail establishments or the types of retail establishments that were important to a brand new city? Well, um, I even include banking in retail, uh, even though it's a service to us today. But in the days, you had to have your cash, and that was in the bank, and for the free enterprise system to work. So the banks come here. 
the founder of the First National Bank, Mr. Richardson. I can't remember the first name now, but he he opened up in a tent. Says, "Here's First National Bank. Come in, and I'll you know help you in this free enterprise." And then you get, uh, of course. William T. Hales is one of my favorites. He was the old mule skinner from Missouri who comes in and by, gets a couple of lots during the land run and creates uh, stables for horses and mules. And so he's trading. So all these farmers who'd come into town on a Saturday uh, were raising the horses and the mules, and they wanted to buy things at these stores in town. And Mr. Hales would be there saying, yeah, I think that old mule's worth $10. Oh, no, we couldn't let go of that for anything less than 20 and said so finally 15. Then they have cash in their hand to go to a dry goods store, to go to uh, you know place to, to get flour. C.G. Gristmill Jones started his gristmill down on the river on the south side of town where people could bring in their corn and their wheat, and he would grind it. Well, that was creating jobs. Then those people with jobs could afford to buy a house. They could afford to do business with others in town. And you put enough of those stories of the C of the C. G. Grismill Joneses and the William T. Hales and the Henry Overholsers, who he he had, had brought in six prefabricated buildings the day of the land run, and put them up. Well, he was a merchant, renting that space for cash, because he had been willing to take a risk to build those in Kansas and bring them here, and it was all working. I would imagine that if you were selling lumber, you were also pretty in demand in the early part of building Oklahoma City. And I do know that there were several merchants who shipped lumber by train from some of the surrounding states to Oklahoma City and some of these other cities that were springing up. And then, uh, of course, uh, a bakery is an important thing to have. And uh, we have the, uh, the Bakery of Indian Territory was founded by George Ross after he claimed a lot on West California Avenue. And so uh, I can imagine that that was a popular establishment as well. Yeah, just go in and get a little bit. B-I-T. <laughs> we got some early photographs of Dan Oklahoma City with the B-I-T sign up there. And, and uh, Bob Ross, who's a good friend of mine, recently lost Bob. But he was very proud of his, uh, his ancestors who came in and took a risk started a business, and then stuck with it in good times and bad. Yeah. And his family is still serving us today. Uh, Bob Ross, uh, head, I, I may say Bob, but, but Bill, Bob is his son now running in as much foundation, still contributing to quality of life and keeping the wheels of the economy rolling. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let's talk about some of the, uh, and we mentioned it before, you talked about Anthony's, which uh, Anthony, C.R. Anthony opened his clothing store with $10,000 of merchandise in 1922. And within a year, he had stores in six Oklahoma boom towns. And by 1972, was up to 325 stores in 21 states west of the Mississippi River. Certainly an Oklahoma success story. And one of those places where you could go get uh, just about anything. And, and clothing was certainly important uh, back in those days and still is. Um, let's talk about some of the other iconic stores. You mentioned TG&Y. Now, I, I would compare TGNY to maybe the precursor of a Walmart. Is that a fair comparison? It is. A little bit of everything. It's taken the old five and dime. And the five and dime was basically you could get everything that was not at the hardware store, not at the general merchandise store, not at the grocery store. So that was the five and dime, the Dixie, Ben Franklin, and other things like that. Well, TGNY came about in the 30s when society was changing. People were leaving the farms and ranches and they were going to the cities. Well, they discovered that they could undercut a lot of the local 
general merchandise stores and five and dimes by pooling their resources to buy the middleman. That's where a lot of the money was. Yeah, you'd make, you know, a little bit on a 98-cent 45 record, and you might make a little bit at the candy counter, but the money was there in the middle. In TGNY, and that was uh, Ray Young, Tomlinson, and Goslin. Uh, one time I was giving a tour. Someone saw the TGNY. They said, you know what that stood for? I said, yeah. And they said, no, no. What it really stood for? It was... Uh, Turtles, yo-yos, and girdles. <laughs> <laughs> or t- turtles, turtles, girdles, and yo-yos. I'll say it right way there. But anyway, those three gentlemen pooled their resources, started central uh, warehouses buying in mass. So if you could buy more, you get a better deal on the, the, the front end. And then you bring it in, you distribute it to all your stores, and you make more money on the, on the back end of it as you sell to the customers. But just like C.R. Anthony who really was a master of going from the old credit system that was so common on the frontier because currency was scarce. When the economy was driven by farms, it was cyclical. You had money when you sold your cotton crop or you sold your cattle or your, you know, your, your hogs or your eggs or your cream. And so it was cyclical. So credit was very important. Well, he says, I'm going to start a store cash and carry. And with cash and carry, there was no credit. So you had no losses on people who didn't pay. And to carry people's notes for even two or three months, you had to have enough cash flow, so you had to raise your prices. So prices were high. There was a lot of loss. Local merchant could make it. Well, uh, Mr. Young, I mean, excuse me, Mr. Anthony, discovered that if he went cash only, eliminated the credit, and had sales, and he could mark it down because he was he was getting it in, in big orders that he could ship to his other stores, he had that margin in there between his cost and what it was retail for, and then he knew he needed to clean out one season so he'd have fall clearance, summer clearance. And today we think, you know, you go into a store any day today and it seems like I have a sale perpetually, 380 days a year, seems like. But, and then they'd have those seasonal sales. And uh, C.R. Anthony understood that very well yeah. and uh, used that. TGNY merchants used it. And that carries all the way to Sam Walton, who was born in Kingfisher, married the banker's daughter out of Claremore, and uh, get, has a B.C. Franklin and uh, expands it into what he calls Walmart. Well, it's the same thing. How do you buy cheaply? How do you add value? And then you add value by building these stores. He found a very efficient way to build stores where his money's not tied up in a store. He finds someone else to build it, and he leases it mm-hmm. over a number of years. So he's keeping his, his cash flow into merchandise and keeping it turning, buying more, out-competing someone else. Well, the story of retail in Oklahoma is generation to generation. Some people learn the new ways, learn how to buy in bulk. They learn how to market better whether it's in newspapers or it's in seasonal sales or it's on the Internet. Times change. People always want to say, well, these are the bad guys because they put the old generation out of business. It would have happened no matter who did it because that technology changes. The markets change. And this flow of goods in this this thing we call supply and demand is always going to change. You always have to adapt. Otherwise, you're going to get left behind. You know, um, you talked about uh, Otasco and being that be the place you got your first bike, which Otasco stood for Oklahoma Tire and Supply Company. 
That was started by Lithuanian Jewish immigrants uh, who uh, started out working as uh, mechanics in South Carolina. So it was San, Sam Maurice and Herman Sanditon who uh, started out, and they started Otasco. They moved to Oklahoma, started selling automobile supplies in Okmulgee after World War I, and then uh, they started calling it Otasco. And by 1959, there's 86 stores, 167 franchises. But I would imagine this is, uh, as it's part of your experience growing up, it's part of many people's experience growing up. Right. And, of course, tires was where it started. And so we, st- we still remember the smell of the tires and the <laughs> seems like oils and things going in one of those stores. But they carried toys and the bicycles and... Uh, other merchandise that that people liked, and I still love going into to uh, parts stores. And Ace is now, you know, the place. Or you know, you can go to the big box stores. But uh, you know, those old Tascos, uh, they had local merchants that you know probably grew up in a community, knew the community, were community leaders. Uh, that was part of small time, small town life in Oklahoma for many generations, and. Uh, you know, many people alive today remember those days of retail. And, of course, everyone remembers Walmart now as it's been around, uh, oh gosh, almost a half a century. But there are always going to be new people. I did a history of Love's Travel Stops and Country Stores. Yeah, another great Oklahoma uh, company. Tom Love uh, knew a little bit about the oil and gas business, Kerr McGee Heritage, and uh, wanted to have his own business, found a little gas station in Watonga, Oklahoma, Leased it for a little bit or nothing. Found a hard-working farm boy who'd worked for a little bit of nothing. Paid at the end of the month. Found out he could buy gasoline down at Winnie Wood with 20 days to pay. And just start selling with a, a very basic business plan. Cheapest gas in town. That was his business plan. And then as he opened other stores, it got to the point. He needed to hire a manager. Centralized staff started growing. And he started getting bigger and bigger. Uh, 24 hours a day. Added food. 7-Eleven concept. He proved that he could do that without adding to the labor side of adding value to what he can generate out of that that store. And then with the completion of the interstate highway system, and especially with the deregulation of trucking in 79, suddenly trucking industry is changing. How are truckers or and travelers are out on those interstates? Well, he goes out to Amarillo, opens that first big travel stop, and that's the beginning of him being a nationally dominant retailer, starting right here in Oklahoma City. Yeah, today there are over 300 locations of the Love's Country Store or Love's Travel Stops. And I'll tell you, you know, going on that road trip to Chicago, there's a couple of Oklahoma companies I always look for on the road because you know that you're going to get a clean bathroom, you know that you're going to get a good store experience. And one of them is Love's, the other is Quick Trip. And so uh, those are always kind of the beacons uh, that you're mm-hmm. looking for because uh, that clean restroom part is probably most important of all. Yeah. Well, Tom and, and Judy and, and Greg and Frank and Jenny and the entire crew at Love's have burst way through that 300 store. And I'll never forget, Tom called me back after the first book had come out in 2013. About five years later, he says, Bob, I'm sorry, we're going to have to do another book. He said, right after your book came out, I told the staff and the family, I said, well, it took us 50 years to get to this size, and the next six years, we're going to double it again. Isn't that something? And they're doing it. Yeah. And that's just vision, uh, willingness to take a risk, understanding supply and demand, and uh, 
and going right back to those basics of uh, adding value. Well, speaking of, of gas stations, I don't want to uh, go, uh, I kind of want to end on talking about a gas station. You know, a lot of people might say, well, where can you go to get that old time service? Where can you go where people still will wash your windshield and help you fill up the car? There's actually a place like that that still exists in Oklahoma, and it's the Chemnitz service station that is in Perry, Oklahoma. And it was started in 1937 by the Mid-Continent Petroleum Company as a, as a DX service station. It's still in business. It's been in the Chemnitz family since 1955. Uh, they went to APCO, and now they're a Sinclair service station since 1994. But you can still go and have that old-time experience, the full-service gas experience there in Perry, Oklahoma. It's right there on the town square. It's it's an incredible place. You can always see lots of people going and taking photos because it still looks like that old-style service station. And uh, you should go visit it in Perry. A couple of good places to visit in Perry. First of all, uh, the Comeback Cafe is there in Perry, and you can get a great meal there and then go visit the service station. And when you pull in to see uh, Craig Chemnitz, and Craig is one of my favorite Oklahomans, a character just full of life and vitality and passion, and he's loaned us artifacts for our exhibit on oil and gas. But when you pull in, you get that ding, 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 ding when your tires roll yeah. over those, uh, those wires. And that's just such a comforting sound to me because I grew up in the days of full service. And I remember self-service. I remember when gas went from 28 cents a gallon to 45 cents a gallon. I thought we were getting ripped off at 45 cents a gallon in shortages, not being able to buy gasoline there in 74. But Craig has stuck with it with his bulk sales, selling to Ditch Witch as well, bulk to other retailers, and then that retail station. And he is committed to keeping it open, and he takes such pride in it. I was there just a few weeks ago for the 80th birthday party of that of that filling station. Well, we've only scratched the surface here, and we could probably spend the next couple hours talking about great Oklahoma retail businesses, but I want to transition now to our guest that we have today. Our guest is going to be Ed Threet, who is the grandson of Alan Threet Sr., who started the Threet Filling Station in 1915. And this is an iconic filling station because it was one of the only black-owned businesses on Route 66, and it's been listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and so I'm really interested to hear his family's story. Well, and what we're going to get there, trade is this, just uh, this reflection of the exhibit on Crossroads of Commerce that people can see here at the History Center every day of the week, but it gets back into supply and demand. There was a demand for, for local goods in the farming community. Mr. Three provided that. Traffic on Route 66, he provided that, so his supply and demand was there. He was willing to take a risk, and he added value to the traveling experience, added value to sense of community, feeding, uh, carrying people on credit when they couldn't afford things. And so you get the, all the basics of free enterprise in an African-American-owned business right here on Historic Route 66. Well, let's talk to Ed. Well, I want to welcome into our podcast now our special guest for this episode, and we are here with Ed Threet. Um, Ed grew up on the property of the Threet Filling Station in Luther, Oklahoma. He uh, has been a lot of things in his career. He's been a jet engine mechanic in the Air Force. He's worked in IT. He's worked in the insurance and banking industries. And we've brought uh, Ed in to have a conversation 
about the history of, of one of our iconic Route 66 retail establishments in Oklahoma, and that is the Threat Filling Station. And uh, the Threat Filling Station was built in 1915 by Alan Threat Sr. It is one of the uh, only known black-owned and operated gas stations on Route 66 during the Jim Crow era. And uh, it was placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1995. So we're really happy to have Ed in here to talk about his memories of the Threat Filling Station and uh, the history and the importance of that property and as well uh, what they're working on as a family to restore that for the 100th anniversary of Route 66 in 2026. So Ed, thank you for being here. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me, both uh, yourself, Trey, and uh, Dr. Blackburn. And it uh, really is an honor for me to be here, um, not just to represent uh, the family property, but to represent my family in general. So thank you very much. Can you talk a little bit about your family's history? Because uh, you all got to Oklahoma very, very early. Uh, did did your family come in the land run and claim that land uh, in uh, Luther? Well, at the time, my grandfather was already here, and uh, that's part of what got him to um, acquire that property for the family. And uh, bless him, it, it, it has been in the family ever since, and that's um, well over 100 years now, so. It's pretty remarkable to be able to have, uh, usually as, as generations go by, more land is kind of parceled up and it's sold off. So to, to have that filling station still in the, the family and to have that property still in the family is pretty remarkable. Well, yes, it is. Um, we had a, um, in our family, we had this, um, what we thought was the verbal understanding that no one in the family could sell their portion of the family to someone outside the family. But as things happened, we did have one branch of the family where the kids moved to Las Vegas, never intended to come back this way, and ended up selling their portion of the family to someone outside the family. And that uh, individual basically tried to um, acquire the entire land, but you know, we, um, as a family, we stuck together and made sure that we did what was necessary to uh, to get this individual out of the family. And, and the most important part was not to have a verbal agreement anymore, to get it documented so that uh, the family is legal. We have a covenant that said the property can never be sold outside the family. So that is a blessing for us and for generations in this family to come. So, Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, your family started off on the property. They farmed, and there was, uh, they, they, there was a stone quarry, so they quarried native stone there on the property. In fact, yes. the filling station is built of stone that is from that property there. Exactly. And then, lo and behold, you have Highway 7, which is runs on the edge of the property. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I guess Alan decided that this was a, a good opportunity to take advantage of some of that traffic. Yes, he did. And uh, again, it's a blessing to his um, entrepreneurial attitude, so to speak, that he, he, he had that vision. And um, he built the, uh, the surface station. And um, <laughs> the rest is all the history, if that makes any sense, you know. 
because um, not only was Grandpa able to uh, start selling uh, fuel to travelers along the way, um, he, he, he pretty much instilled that entrepreneurial attitude in his sons, and it was basically passed down to the rest of the family because um, there's so many members of our family now who have their own businesses and stuff. So it's, uh, it, it was very good, very good for us as, as a family. So, mm-hmm. You know, Trey, that date of 1915 is significant because the history of every business is it really goes back to the laws of supply and demand. A retailer like your grandfather would have been responding to where were the customers. Mm-hmm. Well, they started driving, and, and it's coincidental because in 1915 is the year that Henry Ford built a Model T assembly plant in Oklahoma City on mm-hmm. West Main Street. Mm-hmm. It's now the 21C Hotel. But they were assembling parts coming out of Detroit that were being shipped by rail with 100 fenders on a car rather than four cars, and they were simply selling cars for $400 a piece, which meant that farmers as well as people in the cities could afford cars for the mm-hmm. first time. Mm-hmm. The Model T, a high center of gravity with those narrow wheels, could go through sand and dirt that you found on Oak. I'm sure the uh, highways how, there that, were right. dirt or sand <laughs> right there in that deep fork valley, mm-hmm. that rich mm-hmm. soil over there. But your granddad responded to this new clientele People traveling from point A to B by car, not by rail or wagon. And he saw an opportunity and invested. Correct. And that building is so important to us today because it takes us back to that moment in time when times Mm -hmm. are changing. And here was a a man of vision and entrepreneurial spirit willing to take a risk with the capital as Mm -hmm. a good farmer, probably Mm -hmm. had done well as a farmer in that rich soil of that that North Fork or the Deep Fork River and uh, made it work. Yes, I admire that so much. Well, I think another thing that's so important about what Grandpa did, um, like you said, he built a station, but it also became a haven for, for people of color, okay? Because as you know, during the Jim Crow era, there weren't many places that uh, people of color could stop when they were traveling, get food, get get fuel. Um, and again, because of what Grandpa did and because of the fact that uh, the family owned 150 acres, people were also able to park out back, rest, sleep overnight, and uh, they could continue their travels the next day. And and being being able to come to a location that was safe and, and people right. felt secure, okay, that was such uh, an important part. And even though um, our location was not a part of the Green Book, word of mouth spread and so that people were People just knew about um, the county line, and and that's what it was referred to back in the day. So, Bob, Ed mentioned the Green Book. Can you talk a little bit about what the Green Book was? Yeah, the Green Book was a publication that circulated throughout the country for African Americans as they traveled. And in the days of strict segregation in the South, uh, you took your hands, you know, you took your life into jeopardy. Not knowing where to stop. And so with the Green Book, it would be a guide where you'd see a friendly face, you could get the gasoline, you could stay 
eat and all of that. It was a guide that was prominent. There had been a movie made about the Green Buck, mm-hmm. and uh, it was it was very significant because people don't realize that really in the Deep South, uh, the days of segregation really do not end until the 1960s. Ed and I were both teenagers, mm-hmm. yeah. and segregation was still part of our lives in the South. Not Oklahoma being a border state, not quite as as much of a threat, but throughout the South, it would have been dangerous. So uh, when African Americans traveled, they wanted a bit of safety, and, and that Green Book gave them a place to find those those safe spots along their journeys. Well, and it, it's hard for me to believe that, you know, uh, this is not only one of the only known black-owned businesses on Route 66 to be able to provide that haven, um, but Route 66, is it goes from Chicago to Santa Monica, California. It's a, a very long route. So the fact that this may have been one of the, the lone places of safety and, uh, and sanction there, uh, it's kind of astounding to me. And um, uh, Edmond is a sundown town, so Luther's a good place to stop before you get to Edmond because uh, you you don't want to be driving through Edmond after dark and probably some other towns along the route as well. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, you, you're absolutely correct. But it's, I should also point out that um, Luther was also a sundown town, and... Um, Grandpa's station was in between two sundown towns, Luther Bend one and Wilson the other, okay? But the way Grandpa was as a man, okay, he did not discriminate, and he taught us not to discriminate. And so we we welcomed everyone and anyone could come uh, to the service station, um, there was a bar next door where people could get libations, get food, and stuff like that. But Grandpa didn't tolerate that, and and like I said, and and what I mean is he did not tolerate discrimination, and it's hard to discriminate against someone when you know what discrimination feels like. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. You you just you don't practice that. And so um, Grandpa taught us a little different, and uh, even and even with my mom, you know, yeah, she she told me what I could and could not do, where I could and could not go. But discrimination was not a part of the way we were raised; it just wasn't. So, well, one of the interesting things that I read in researching uh, to get ready for this interview is that uh, really uh, the filling station was. Probably one of the first known examples of kind of a convenience store. Exactly. Uh, in exactly. 1935, they had a cafe, and in 19, or I'm sorry, 1935, they had a grocery store. In 1937, they had a cafe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so now this becomes not only a place to get gas and to get your car worked on, but now you could come in and grab a few groceries, and, and it became a place for the people that were out in the country. They didn't have to go all the way to town to get there, get a few uh, necessary items. Correct. Again, and that, that, this is another reason that um, the the station was so significant. Okay, because again, you're talking people of color. They can come in. They can get what they need. And the one thing about and this is this is what you're talking about now is past um, some of the things that Grandpa did. He um, people didn't always have money. 
okay? And so we have, thanks to my aunt, we still have the ledger books where people came in and things were pretty cheap back then, okay? So 35 cents and 20 cents for that. And we have all of this um, historical documentation to show who owed what, when they got it, so on and so forth, okay? And that was important because, like I said, people didn't have a lot of money back then. And for people of color to be able to come in and get something on credit, and, and, and my grandpa knew they were going to come back and pay. That was not a big deal. Yeah. And it was a blessing for him to be able to provide that kind of a service to the people in the area and stuff. So it was, it was just a blessing. My guess, too, Ed, is that we know until the early 1930s there was probably a family on every 40 acres in that area. Yes. That's good cropland, mm-hmm. cotton. Mm-hmm. would have been the crop for cash. So a right. family, if they had, to say, 40 acres, 20 acres in cotton, 10 in, in maybe corn to feed the, the, the cattle and the horse or the mule. Mm-hmm. and uh, But their income was seasonal with whatever they could truck farm or they could sell the cotton. Exactly. And people like your grandfather and your grandmother and your aunt who kept the store growing would have said, yes, I, you can buy your five pounds of flour mm-hmm. and come pay me when you sell your apples or That's your peaches. Right. Exactly. Come in when you harvest those peanuts exactly. or you take your vegetables in Oklahoma City to sell. Mm-hmm. And people typically would come back and pay. Yes. So I would guess a big portion of their, their business was that local community mm-hmm. along that Deep it Fork was. River. A lot of it people was. don't realize Deep Fork is, is a major river. Right, right. And it had been right. flooding for 50 million years and laying down <laughs> that good soil yes, yes, that yes. you all had mm-hmm. there. And, uh, and then when Route 66 uh, started in 1926 is when they started building the original uh, roadbed through there, it was a major thoroughfare from Oklahoma City to Tulsa. When my father was a highway patrolman on Route 66, starting in 1945, mm-hmm. and he was assigned to Chandler because he had the section between Stroud and Oklahoma City or Edmond. And I grew up in Edmond because of that. But that was his stretch of Route 66. And, you know, people go to Tur- Turner Turnpike today and see all that traffic. Well, that was on Route 66. Exactly. So your granddad probably was making a penny a gallon on that 15-cent gallon Mm -hmm. for Marlin Oil or Conoco, whomever Mm -hmm. it may have been at the time, Mm -hmm. then making money from the local community. I can see him balancing his business plan. Yeah. He, um, like I said, Grandpa Grandpa was just uh, an entrepreneur, and he passed it on to his oldest son, my Uncle Eulis, who actually took over the station, him and... uh, Miss Street. I call her Miss Street because she was my teacher. She was also my aunt, but mm-hmm. you can't go to school and say auntie. So she was always Miss Street to me. Um, was that Elizabeth? Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, she taught in the uh, the school system in, in Luther. She was first my teacher at Washington, okay, which was the segregated black school. And then we moved, she was one of the few teachers that moved from Washington over to Luther. And uh, she continued to teach there, and she was a teacher in Luther for 46 years total. Mm. So, uh, but uh, I can remember, you know, when we would get off of the bus, and this is when we were at Washington, uh, the bus always let us off right there by the station, okay? 
So your first stop was always at the station. A mystery knew we were coming to get popsicles, okay? And so that Probably was a nickel apiece. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, they didn't cost us anything because she would just she would <laughs> give us a popsicle and stuff like that, uh-huh. you know. But um, no, that was, it was, oh man, I cannot tell you how much of a blessing that it was just to grow up on that property, to be surrounded by people that that looked like you. They didn't. You didn't have to be worried about being called anything but your name. You had more than one mom, more than one father, because if you got in trouble, um, <laughs> they all knew. They <laughs> all knew. Yeah. They all knew. So, so it was a blessing. Yeah. And part of that is I grew up in a small town, and and part of that is small town life too. Yes, it is. All the other moms were your mom too. So exactly. if they caught you cutting the fool, you were going to be not only in trouble with your own parents, but you were going to mm-hmm. be in trouble with them too. And if you got a spanking over here, you can count on getting a spanking when you got home, <laughs> and and. I guess that's why we don't we I can't remember any of my cousins getting in trouble. Because when you grew up getting a spanking over here for acting silly and then another spanking when you got home, you knew to straighten up, you yeah. know. So you just I don't know. That's yeah. just the way it was. So And yeah. speaking about Luther and retail, of course, a lot of your memories are at the store, but in Luther itself in 1978, I put uh, several buildings on the National Register of Historic Places when I was still at OSU Graduate School. Mm-hmm. But one of them was Teuton's Drugstore in Arcadia, mm-hmm. and the other was an old drugstore in Luther that had a bunch of Coca-Cola posters around the top. Mm-hmm. And the, you could still go in and get a dip of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was 78, so I'm sure when you were there, it was still there. Yeah. But that mm-hmm. was quite, I don't remember the name of that store, but it was still going in, in the late 70s. It's that since was closed. probably Jake Lohman's store. Yes, it was. Okay. That is exactly. <laughs> he was still alive when uh-huh. I interviewed him. Yeah. Um, yeah, we used to eat there all the time. You know, it was, uh, again, growing up in a small town, the mentality is just different, okay, than than being in Oklahoma City, so to speak. And we just, we just saw life different. And, um, growing up out on the, uh, the property, um, Oh man, I, again, it it was a blessing to be around people that thought like you did, that acted like you did. That boy, you better not do that. I'm gonna tell your mama, and you know, just it was nice. Now, this is something that I read that I find fascinating. Did they actually hold Negro League baseball games out there? Yes, yes, yes. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, my dad, my dad actually owned uh, a but ba- not owned, yeah, owned. He had a baseball team. It's not like it is today, right? With, you know, ownership and that kind of thing. But yeah, um, Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, that place was packed with with just people of color. Because back then, you know, it was just, it was strictly black people against black people. And there were teams that would come out from Oklahoma City and play games. And not just my dad, but my uncle also had his own baseball team. So we had a baseball field um, on the same side of the street that um, the station is on. And my uncle had another baseball team that was across the street. 
And um, man, you talk. I'm talking wall to wall people. Wow. And I, I was just a kid, so it was just fascinating to me. And because um, I guess I really had an up close view of everything because my dad owned the team, and my dad also ran the bar next to the service station. So, and back then, you know, there was no age restriction on kids going in the bars. And I was in and out of the bar. I was there trying to catch uh, pictures. Well, I was too young because they threw too hard because I just, I couldn't do it. But um, just being a part of that environment was really, uh, it's, it's a blessing, man. It was just a blessing. And you know, there were also big barbecues and dances out there. And I read that people would come from Oklahoma City and Tulsa to uh, and, and all points in between to go out there. I, I just I've driven by there several times and I hope that at some point we can recreate that out there again, mm-hmm. because it just uh, I would have loved to have been uh, if I could get in my time traveling DeLorean and go see what that atmosphere would be like out right. there. Well, behind the, you talk about. Behind the station, behind the bar, they built it. I don't know if my dad built it, uh, some of the brothers, I'm, I'm not sure. But there was an actual dance floor that was built out in the back back there. And they had lights hung in the trees and stuff like that. Um, and they would just have, <laughs> it was a big party. It was just one big party. So it was nice and, you know. People get tipsy, and and again, because we had so much property, park your car and stay right there. Don't Mm -hmm. try to drive. Don't try to go nowhere. Sleep it off. And you don't have to worry about somebody, you know, Mm -hmm. messing with you. You just don't have to. So So Alan Threat Sr. dies in December of 1950. Correct. And so then uh, Grant, his son, takes over the operation until 1956, correct? Eulis. Oh, Eulis. Uncle Eulis. Okay. Uh, I remember I was, um, you know, he was my favorite uncle because he lived right there. Um, And... um, yeah, he took it over. He passed. Uncle Yules passed away in uh, 1956, and uh, and like I said, I was his favorite. Uh, he was my favorite uncle. Everywhere he went, I wanted to go. Um, yeah, I uh, I really kind of get every every time I talk about him, I think about. Because I remember when Uncle Yules passed mm-hmm. away. I remember what the funeral services were were like that day. That was the first time I ever saw my dad cry. Okay? And, you know, at, at that age, you're wondering, okay, what's he crying about? What's this? What's that? You know, that kind of thing there. But um, I think that because I was so close with my Uncle Eulis. Fifty years later, here I am, me and my wife, we are the caregivers for his wife. Because when he passed away, she never remarried. And uh, I remember her telling me that 
their bedroom used to be upstairs in the uh, in the service station, okay? Okay. But when he passed on, she said she never went back up there again, okay? And she had an extension built onto the back of the station so that she would have a bedroom up there. But but she never remarried. It was over 50 years and she never made a trip back up those steps again. Hmm. Based on what she told me, you know, and the one, the only thing that I regret is that I didn't pay more attention when she was talking to me about things. I didn't listen and remember and write stuff down. Um, I mean, it's too late now, but you know. Bob, we hear as people in the history world and as a historian yourself, we hear those comments time and time again. If only I had recorded these stories mm-hmm. if only I'd asked these questions. So do you have any mm-hmm. admonitions for people out there about talking to their family members mm-hmm. before it's too late? Yeah, oral histories are important yeah. and, and oral. And when Ed and I were growing up, people s- still sat around the campfire a lot. That's the mm-hmm. value of deer camps and going fishing in the spring with mm-hmm. the uncles because mm-hmm. you hear mm-hmm. those stories over and over and we pass it down to the next generation. But that's that's becoming more problematic now right. that people have computers and live distances. But, Ed, I wanted to bring up, if you don't mind, Trey, uh, I remember meeting you and a couple of your cousins. You came into Melvina Heisha's office, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I know Melvina kind of took you under her wing, and Melvina yes. was kind of the grand matriarch of historic preservation. Mm-hmm. Can mm-hmm. you talk about when you first came in, what were those first meetings like? What were you trying to do? What were your, you and your cousins? You, you recognize the importance of it, and, mm-hmm. of course, your love for your family mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. preserving that memory. But I remember you coming in and, uh, and meeting with you. Well, okay, so on my way here, uh, I had a conversation with my cousin David, okay? And we spoke specifically about you, okay? And how we had this desire to save, to preserve, everything about our family because we knew about the history. We knew about the property or or the station being on the uh, historical registry and stuff like that. But we didn't know, though, was how to move forward, okay? And and again, it was a blessing that we were able to sit down and talk to you. And one thing that, because we had talked about turning the station into a museum, and the one thing that sticks in my mind and David's mind is you telling us that's not a good idea. <laughs> okay. I mean, that that we preserve the history, yes, but that we turn that place into a museum, no, because museums typically are not um it's hard to make a run at a, at a financially <laughs> prosperous museum. That's what I'm trying to say. That. Uh, I would say just as a little aside that in my short tenure being two years at OHS, and I know Bob is uh, you know lot, much longer than I have, I, I, we talk people out of trying to do museums a lot. Mm-hmm. And not because mm-hmm. the idea isn't valuable, but because you, it is a really hard road to hoe to get a museum to be viable. Correct, correct. So, so you know, now we're working to, to, to get the building fully restored. We want it to be uh, an interpretive center. We want it to be a destination for people who travel along Highway 66 to stop, spend some time there. 
uh, find a little bit more, find out a little bit more about the family history, things of that nature, look at the property. But uh, I really have to pat you on the back for saying, don't do that. Okay. <laughs> well, and, and I remember that conversation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but and it came from the heart uh, from all of us. We all wanted to do something. But just by saying, what can we do? Right, and right. just throwing that question on the table and Melvina's connections with the National Trust for Historic Preservation, uh, yes. that first grant yes. that you got for planning, that yes. helped us explore right. what could be done with that property. Mm-hmm. But I remember you and David, I, I could sense your passion for it. You you wanted to do it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Melvina and I would talk after you would leave and say, we've got to help these people. We have got to yeah. do something with this. Yeah. And I know Melvina will be listening to this podcast. I always okay. like to give a shout out to her because okay. she was a creative person who knew that community. Mm-hmm. Talk about that first planning effort and, and then the roof and that grant from the Route 66. Yeah. Well, um, <coughs> you say that that first planning effort, well, it was all about us trying to, okay, get your heads wrapped around everything here and, and, you know, try to develop a direction, okay? Um, What is it that uh, you want to do? How do we get there, okay? And not only only yourself, but the National Trust, the uh, Oklahoma Route 66 Association, the Road Ahead Project, um, there have been so many... People and I don't want to call names because if I do, I know I'll leave someone mm-hmm. out. So I'm just trying to identify all of the different organizations that have helped us. None more important than the kickstart we got right here at the Oklahoma History Center. I can't emphasize that enough. And we still, I, I can still call the names of people here that help us a lot, and that being Linda Ozan, Ozan, mm-hmm. uh, Sarah Warnicky, um they're just invaluable. And and Sarah has played a big part in steering us uh, in terms of what we can do when, when we talk about restoring the service station and stuff, you know. So um, um, Mike Kurtok, the architect that put together mm-hmm. the original HSR report, you know, that was the guidebook to everything that we're doing right now. And we still use that today because the project itself is not complete, okay? And uh, as a matter of fact, i got to get a meeting together between uh, the contractor, the architect, and Sarah for next week sometime just to make sure that uh, we're still on track and um, moving in the right direction. But everything, everything started right here at the, with yourself um, and um, Melvina. Melvina well, it started with you and your cousin wanting to do something. Without that, right. there's, we in the public sector can support mm-hmm, and help mm-hmm. guide, but it has to come from people like you who not only can visualize something, but it's got to be in the heart. It has to mm-hmm. be a passion. Mm-hmm. And then once we have a passion for something, that there's so much satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And you watching this thing come together piece by piece must be very satisfying to you. And those memories of your uncle and your dad and your grandma, your aunt, Mm -hmm. those Mm -hmm. memories probably come back every time. And your sense of place is something all of us strive for. 
Where do we fit in this world? You know, I don't think that, um, well, I know, I know that there's not a time that I walk through the front door of that building that I don't think about Grandpa, okay? Because, Lord knows, I, I never met him. But at the same time, I do not want to disappoint Grandpa yeah. because mm-hmm. I kind of feel like he's watching me. And he's mm-hmm. not just me, but but this whole thing started with myself, my cousin David, three, and my cousin Linda. And David, he lives out in uh, Upper Marlboro, Maryland. Linda, she's in Las Vegas. And I'm here. But it was the three of us coming together about five, six years ago said, we have to do something. We have to save this. We have to make sure. Okay, And and basically, that's what we've done. And we have a conference, not one. We have, we're set to have three conference calls every week without fail. And we do that. And that's the three of us. But David and I, David and I we talk more often than that because we have to. I, I don't do anything on this end without David knowing about it, without... No. You're like brothers. Yeah, we are. We are. We are brothers. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're cousins, but yeah. we're and, brothers. And so. I should point out, too, that Alan Threat Sr. in uh, July of last year was added. Uh, he was inducted into the Oklahoma Route 66 Hall of Fame. Correct. Correct. And so um, a big honor there. And I had the privilege of speaking at that ceremony yes. out in Clinton at the Oklahoma Route 66 mm-hmm. Museum. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that recognizes his impact and contribution to the history of Route 66. Correct, mm-hmm. correct, correct. Yes, it does. You know, Alan, I'm sorry, Ed, um, there are probably some folks out there who are stirred by this story, and maybe they're hearing it for the first time today. I know you have a website, mm-hmm. and some folks may want to say, how can I help? What are some ways that they can help, either financially or in other ways? And uh, you might mention the website, too. Well, the website is... Um, is streetfillingstation.org, okay? And we encourage we people to go and make a contribution um, because we are, I would say, 90% through the restoration process with the Three Filling Station. But that's not even half the story of everything we need to do in order to be ready for the uh, centennial in in a couple of years here. So if people could go to the website, make a contribution, we would be uh, forever grateful. And, um, you know, I also have to say there's a gentleman who actually lives in Australia who sent us a donation. And uh, I have some paperwork and, and some articles that I intend to send back send back to him just to say thank you, okay? Because yeah, our story is out there, and there are people who are aware who are aware of us, but um, we can't have enough support, okay? We we just can't. We uh, there's a lady that came over from Spain that did uh, an article on us, and we actually had a viewing of the video that she did at the uh, Overholster Mansion. Uh, a couple, a few weeks back, you know. So it, it's, yeah, it's been all good. There are a lot of positives, but we just, 
there's still so much yet to be accomplished. Well, Ed, thank you so much for coming in and for sharing your family's story and for talking about this really important institution of the Threat Filling Station. Uh, we're so glad that we had a chance to talk to you today. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank yourself, Trait, and Dr. Blackburn. Um, and again, I, I just have to send up high praises to Dr. Blackburn, okay? Sure, because yeah. he was just right there giving us support, giving us direction, and uh, that was very critical. And you met with myself and David, mm -hmm. um, my cousin. So um, thank you. Thank oh, yeah. you all very much. It's been a pleasure to know you and to watch how much progress you've made. And you you will finish this project, and you will be a rock star in 26, <laughs> okay. when Route 66 is all the right. news of the town. All right, all right. That sounds good <laughs> to me. So, okay. All right. Well, Bob, I just had such a good time talking to Ed. It was wonderful to hear his stories. You can see, I know our listeners can't, but you can see the emotion in his eyes when he's talking about his family and the memories of growing up around that uh, iconic service station. And it was just wonderful to have him here and hear his stories. Well, again, back to the basics of free enterprise, the supply and demand is that many of us want to, to, to see back into the past, the way things were. And you can see it in that historic architecture and the story of the family. He's adding value by trying to do the restoration to provide more experience as we approach the centennial Route 66. And uh, they are just taking that risk by being dedicated to this, and they really want it to happen. And I, I appreciate that passion in anybody for, for getting something done. And I have faith that he and his cousins will complete this. Uh, absolutely. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you again, Bob, and we'll look forward to the next episode. Thank you, Trey. You've been listening to A Very Okay Podcast, hosted by Trey Thompson and Dr. Bob Blackburn. The podcast is produced by the Oklahoma Historical Society. Visit us at okhistory.org and find us on social media by searching for at okhistory. I encourage you to purchase a membership to OHS to help us continue our mission to collect, preserve, and share Oklahoma's unique and fascinating history.